How can America's policing problem be fixed? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Clark Neely. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Clark Neely. Clark is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law, overcriminalization, coercive plea bargaining, police accountability, and gun rights. Before joining Cato in 2017, he was a senior attorney and constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice and director of the Institute's Center for Judicial Engagement. He is an adjunct professor at George Mason's Antonin Scalia School of Law where he teaches constitutional litigation and public interest law. Clark is the author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. And he also contributed a chapter to libertarianism.org's Visions of Liberty. Clark, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. So Clark, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation answers take us. Our question today is, how can America's policing problem be fixed? And before we get to some policy solutions you may have in mind, I think it's a good that we start with some background, that is to say the problem itself, and then move on to some solutions and things like that. Let's start with how you actually start an article. You say, quote, before you can fairly assess the legitimacy of the ongoing protests or the quality of the government's response, you must understand the relevant facts. And the most relevant fact is that America's criminal justice system is rotten to its core. And I have a couple of notes here that nudges us along to talk about specifically why it's rotten. But but at, even at a high level, why is it so important that we, we, before we get going, we actually stop there and recognize this? Yeah, well, so police have the job of, you know, being the sort of the front line of executing and enforcing criminal justice policy. They're the ones you're going to come into contact with uh, initially, and they're the ones that uh, most Americans have the most contact with when it comes to uh, the criminal justice system. And so if the system itself is rotten, as I contend that it is, then those who are primarily tasked with being on the front lines of bringing that system to bear, so to speak, on the citizenry uh, are going to be in the you know kind of unenviable and morally difficult situation uh, of imposing on citizens uh, a fundamentally rotten, unjust, and morally indefensible system. And keep in mind that the, the essence of any criminal law system is to do violence to people. It is to, right. uh, to, to arrest them, to, to fine them, to lock them up, sometimes to use actual physical violence, including even lethal force. So it turns out that the stakes are extraordinarily high. It's a, it's a, it's a fraught uh, you know, uh, dynamic. Uh, and so if you have, you know, essentially a fundamentally morally indefensible system, the people charged with uh, applying and executing it, again, are going to be in a very difficult position. So you encourage people when they think about the, the, the quote, system overall, that policing is the tip of the iceberg, if you will, that people need to understand that what's under the surface as well to understand how we get to the point where we have issues of policing, which again, we'll talk about specifics later. But it, but it seems like you want people to keep in mind, at least in the back of their heads, that we're talking about an all-encompassing thing here. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both the tip of the iceberg and the tip of the spear, so to speak. So they're mm. the tip of the iceberg in the sense that there's an awful lot uh, going on in criminal justice besides simply sort of street-level encounters between police and citizens. Um, that, that does seem to be what's provoking a lot of the, uh, the current sense of frustration and anger in America. But they're also the tip of the spear, as I alluded to a moment ago, in the sense that um, they are sort of on the front lines of executing criminal justice policy. And they're the people, they being the police, are the people that you're going to come into contact with the most when it comes to um, you know, your uh, experience of criminal justice in your country as a citizen. And as far as the whole system is concerned, I'm going to continue with actually a quote from one of your articles. Um, you say, there are three 
fundamental pathologies in America's criminal justice system that completely undermine its moral and political legitimacy and render it a menace to the very concept of constitutionally limited government. And then you go on to actually list those pathologies, of course. Um, and I'd actually like you to take our listeners through that, if you don't mind, at a high level. One of the first things you start with, actually, in this article is unconstitutional overcriminalization. Can, can you take us through what you mean by this? You bet. Uh, so one of the most fundamental moral imperatives is that you have got to have a morally legitimate reason when you interfere with another person's free will and or do violence to that person. And there are some uh, settings in which it is morally legitimate to do violence to another person. An example would be when it is necessary to prevent that person from harming an innocent third party or harming you. That is a legitimate moral basis on which to do violence to another person. The violence needs to be proportional, it needs to be reasonable, and it needs to stop when the threat ends. One of the biggest, I think, problems with American criminal justice is that people who work in criminal justice and the judiciary, which of course is also intimately involved in the application of criminal justice, um, pretty much acts as if this basic moral precept that you have to have a legitimate reason for doing violence to other people does not apply to government officials. Hmm. And so that while I would have to have a, a morally legitimate basis for doing violence to you or restricting your freedom, if I were wearing a badge and employed by the government, then somehow that moral requirement doesn't apply and nothing could be further from the truth. In point of fact, not only is there a moral uh, limitation on my ability as a police officer to do violence to you, there is an additional constitutional limit on my ability uh, to do violence to you. So in fact, contrary to the way I think many people within the criminal justice system see it, um, they don't have a relatively um, sort of lower burden when it comes to when they can do violence to other people. Theirs is actually higher. They simply act as if it were lower. So what we have in effect is police uh, out on the streets, um, uh, doing violence to people, using force against people, taking away people's freedom uh, under circumstances where the, the decision to do so is not morally defensible and, in fact, would be morally condemnable if an ordinary citizen were doing it to another person. And it's just as inappropriate uh, when somebody's wearing a badge as when they're not wearing a badge. Right. And in that same vein, tying it back to something you actually were saying earlier, too, you, you, you do say in the article, the system, quote, vastly exceeds the scope of what a criminal justice system may legitimately seek to address while routinely using force against peaceful, peaceful people in morally indefensible ways. So, so again, you are saying there is a legitimate role for, for, the, for the police and, of course, the justice system over, overall. But again, you're also saying that that's not what we're seeing now. It's, it's, we're vastly exceeding, in your words, what that legitimate role would be. Precisely. And, and, and we can take a very clear example. Um, you know, murder is an act that is condemned in every civilized setting. Right. And um, a society simply cannot tolerate a situation where people are, are allowed to go around killing other people, uh, you know, at will. And, uh, and, and the same is true of other sort of one hates to say lesser, but other violent crimes, armed robbery, assault, uh, things of that nature. Also theft and fraud. These are things that threaten the very fabric of civil society, and it's perfectly legitimate. Indeed, it is, um, it is vitally important uh, that the government take steps uh, to discourage those acts and to try to prevent them from happening. And that would even include using force against people um, who simply refuse to let others go about their business in peace. Um, but that doesn't mean that every criminal law is legitimate. Far from it. Let me give you an example. Um, up until uh, last year, uh, there was a law in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that made it a crime to wear saggy pants. And of course, as I'm sure many people know, this is a you know sort of a fashion statement that is associated with particular uh, cultures in our country, uh, and um, to, to make it illegal to wear pants that reveal your underwear, there's no morally legitimate basis for that. And more than 700 people were arrested for violating that law during the nearly decade that it was on the books. And it was only repealed when a police officer shot and killed a man uh, who he was attempting to arrest for wearing saggy pants. That's a good example 
of a morally indefensible criminal law. Mm-hmm. And a even more powerful example, because it's so much more common that people, you know, that you see the law in the books and people get arrested for it, would be making it illegal to grow the wrong, not particularly dangerous plant in your backyard, as we still do in America. And and I guess it would seem to me as, as you're saying that too, that one also needs to se- separate like what's defensible uh, from a moral perspective and also an application perspective. As you said, I, I think you came up with a great example of something that's morally indefensible. Um, and also, of course, therefore, when applied, still indefensible. But I'm sure we can also think of areas as well that uh, uh, theoretically and principally, we say, OK, here's a quote unquote legitimate function of the state, a legitimate function of the police and enforcers. But then even then, we have to be careful that in and of itself doesn't mean what they go and do is justified as well. I think there's an application side, it seems to me, you're saying that we also have to be careful with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, even when you are engaged in an enforcement activity that is potentially morally legitimate, uh, we still have to think about things like proportionality uh, and the legitimacy of what you're doing. So, for example, it is certainly not permissible uh, to you know, uh, do grave physical harm to somebody uh, simply because they failed to signal a turn while they were driving their right, car. Right, right. efforts have to be proportional. Just like, uh, as we talked about a moment ago, there are times when a private individual uh, is, is both morally and legally authorized to use force against another private individual, but it still has to be proportional. And actually, on that note, I think that's a great segue into another thing I want to ask you about. So it's a, yet again, another quote from the articles. You say, uh, the three branches, and here you're talking about three branches of the American government, have essentially hacked that limitation, the, their legitimate limitations, using what amounts to a constitutional magic trick whereby the legislative and executive branches simply lie in court about their true justification for enforcing various laws, and the judiciary pretends to credit those fraudulent explanations for restricting people's freedom. So, so what's going on there? Well, let's take an example of a case I actually litigated when I was at the Institute for Justice. It's actually a crime in the state of Florida uh, or it was up until a few months ago when the law was changed. Uh, but um, uh, th- up until a few months ago, it was a crime in Florida to practice interior design in a commercial setting without a license from the government. <laughs> uh, that law was upheld by the judiciary when we challenged it. The um, And, and the, the government came into court and lied in court about possible basis for the law. They said, well, maybe this is about protecting people from the physical dangers of unlicensed interior design. And by the way, there are none. How do we know that? Because there are only three states that license interior designers. There right. are 47 states that don't license, and there are no problems in any of those states. So to represent to a court that this law may have been enacted in order to protect people's physical safety is a lie. Um, and the court, the court credited that lie and, and chose deliberately not to consider, not to ask why the law was actually enacted, what government end it actually serves. And of course, it serves a very clear government end, which is to suppress competition uh, in the interior design market and ensure that only a special handful of people get to um, practice that vocation. Right. So that's what I mean when I say that the government will sometimes, uh, I'm sorry, the judiciary will sometimes permit the government to come into court and lie about its true ends. Um, in both enacting and enforcing particular criminal laws. Can I add more that's even more kind of relevant? Oh, sure, of course, yes. Yeah, I mean, so obviously going into court and lying about um, why you are uh, enforcing a law that makes it a crime to practice interior design without a license does not affect a whole lot of people. Um, A law that does affect a whole lot of people is the decision, for example, to make marijuana a Schedule I drug which makes it among the most highly regulated drugs in America and puts it right up there uh, with things like cocaine and heroin. Uh, and to be a Schedule One drug, it has to be uh, have the potential to be highly addictive um, and no currently accepted medical use. The U.S. government has repeatedly represented in court fraudulently that marijuana has no medically accepted use. That has been false for decades, and it's increasingly clear how false it is, and yet the government continues to refuse to change its position and be honest in court about the fact that marijuana, in fact, does have a variety of medically accepted uses. So that would be another example of the government coming into court and lying uh, to in court in order to, uh, to prop up or to maintain a particular criminal justice policy. In this case, the blanket federal prohibition on the cultivation, possession, and consumption of marijuana and the decision to, to continue classifying marijuana as a Schedule One drug, making it among the most highly regulated in the country. That is done on the basis of demonstrably fraudulent representations by the government to the judiciary. 
so they're basing their case on the criteria of, of, of schedule one rather than anything else basically they're, they're they're molding their entire argument based on lies as you said to keep it in that category rather than arguing anything based on fact right because again to be a title one drug it has to have no medically accepted use marijuana does have medically accepted uses but the government nevertheless persists in misrepresenting in court um that fact and, and claiming that it does not uh, and and to their to their to the great shame of our judiciary, they continue to go along with those lies um, and credit them when, in fact, everybody who has taken an honest look at this issue understands uh, that the government's representations in court are are utterly fraudulent on this point. Right. And actually, your comment at the end there was one of the quick follow notes I was going to say that's important, I guess, as we go through this together, that our listeners keep in mind that th- there's the one side in this example you just brought up, which is the government uh, making their case. But then, of course, the flip side, of that's the judiciary accepting this fraudulent information for that case. Um, you talk about point and convict adjudication. I really like that term. And you talk about really ultimately this is this is plea bargains as a problem can you get into that for us the, the bottom line is this america absolutely does have a problem with mass incarceration we are the world's leading jailers we have about five percent of the world's population and 25 percent of the world's prisoners we incarcerate people at a rate that is four or five times higher than other liberal democracies like canada Great Britain, Australia, and so forth. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have a problem, but it is strongly suggestive that there's a problem. And when you start looking underneath the hood, so to speak, uh, what you see should horrify you. My position is this. You cannot have mass incarceration without mass adjudication. Why is that? Because in America, you can't put somebody in prison without first convicting them of a crime. And the constitutionally prescribed process for for obtaining a criminal conviction is actually quite cumbersome. The person, of course, has to be first arrested and advised of the charges. They have to be appointed a lawyer if they can't afford one. They're, they're um, at least in theory and on paper, uh, enjoy the benefit of any number of procedural protections culminating in a rather inefficient process for adjudicating criminal charges, which is a jury trial. Jury trials are expensive, they're time consuming, they require 12 ordinary people to take off however much time from work or from their families is required to to participate in the trial and render a verdict. Um, And many people within the criminal justice system consider all of these things to be bugs, but in fact, they're not, they're features. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the main feature is this, requiring the government to jump through all of these hoops and hurdles and to pay the full constitutional rate for obtaining a criminal conviction imposes a kind of natural limit on how many prosecutions the government can undertake. And it puts you in a position of saying, you know what, if we're going to take away somebody's freedom, put them in a cage, right. we're going to have to step up and pay for the process that culminates in a criminal conviction. And it's an expensive process. Probably the average cost of a non-capital felony prosecution in America is is at least $100,000 and maybe more than $200,000 when you count everything. Um, That's quite a bit to pay, but you should be willing to pay that much if you're going to put another human being in a cage. Right. Problem in America is that judges and prosecutors have learned how to hack that constitutionally prescribed mechanism for getting criminal criminal convictions, which is, again, Uh, a process that that culminates in a jury trial. Today, 95% of criminal convictions in America are obtained not through constitutionally prescribed jury trials, but instead through an extra constitutional process that we call plea bargaining. But it's really a misnomer because it is so coercive, there's really no bargaining. It's simply the government coercing people into waiving their constitutional right to a jury trial and agreeing to condemn themselves and plead guilty to a crime that they may or may not have committed, which which transforms this process from one that is expensive, inefficient, and risky to one that is cheap, efficient, and certain for the government. And that's why we're able to rack up so many criminal convictions in this country and put so many people in cages. That really is mass adjudication is not only the sine qua non, but also the driving force behind mass incarceration. Without mass adjudication, you could not have mass incarceration. Right. And and drilling a bit more into the part of the coercive aspect of what we're talking about there, I I suppose right off the bat, it's questionable if these people are, number one, getting the right legal advice if they're on the defense side, and number two, 
genuinely understand that taking take just you know just taking the bargain for instance actually carries with it in fact a criminal guilt a conviction that goes on your record whether or not it's it's not no jail time in that bargain regardless again i'm assuming it's questionable whether or not most people actually truly understand the weight of what they might be accepting in that situation well that's certainly true uh the the collateral consequences is how we describe that of a criminal conviction even a misdemeanor conviction can be serious um it can affect housing employment the ability to obtain various government benefits. Um, and if you are a non-citizen, it can also, uh, particularly with a felony conviction, it's almost certain to lead to, deport- to deportation. So yes, um, there are significant collateral consequences. The um, key to understand is just how incredibly coercive the process has become while the judiciary just literally buries its hand, head in the sand and pretends not to see it. Let me give you an illustration. Um, some of you may be familiar with the, um, the the kind of scandal that we that we had here in the U.S., where a bunch of uh, celebrities um, uh, used different unfair means to get their children into colleges. Right. Called the Varsity Blues investigation, uh, and it involved this college admission scandal. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about that uh, Varsity Blues investigation is that not all of the people who were ultimately charged with crimes in that case did the same thing. There was a variety of conduct that was going on, and it it kind of spanned a spectrum. Everything from cutting a big fat check to an athletic team, for example, uh, all the way to the other end of the scale where people were literally paying to have another uh, uh, person go and take the SAT or the ACT entrance examination for their own child, a very demonstrably obvious act of fraud. My point is this, to a high degree of certainty, some of the people who were charged with crimes in connection with this Varsity Blues admission scandal were guilty, and some were almost certainly not guilty of having committed any crime. Because again, this conduct spanned a a spectrum um, from uh, conduct that may look, you know, sort of unseemly, but really doesn't amount to anything more than promising to uh, uh, build a new library on campus, and hopefully they'll give your kids some special consideration. So, it's a, it's a, it was a very interesting question, right, about what percentage of people who are charged with crimes in connection with this scandal were actually guilty. What has happened so far is that virtually everybody has pleaded guilty. Um, and I don't believe anyone has yet uh, exercised their right to a jury trial. And mm. the, the reason for that is not because they don't understand the consequences. It's not because they don't have counsel. These are very wealthy people who've hired some of the best lawyers in the country. Right. They're well advised. Yes, they are. They're not only well advised, they're, they're zealously represented. Mm-hmm. I believe the reason is quite simple, and it's this. The Department of Justice, in this case, is, is doing the thing that the Department of Justice is primarily skilled at. In other words, DOJ prosecutors are no longer people who go into courtrooms and try cases. They are not courtroom advocates anymore. What they are especially capable of is is coercing people into pleading guilty. That is the primary skill set of a prosecutor in America today, is to coerce somebody into pleading guilty. And in this case, it's very simple how they're doing it. They, uh, for, for people who were unwilling to plead guilty right off the bat, what the prosecutors did was they would then go and get a superseding indictment that included a conspiracy charge. And this vastly increases your exposure to punishment. So now people are now looking at up to 20 years in prison if they go to trial and lose. Hmm. And they're being offered something in the range of two weeks to two months in prison if they agree to waive their right to a trial and plead guilty instead. Uh, and I think virtually anybody faced with that kind of a threat You've engaged in some possibly ambiguous conduct. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have a pretty good chance of getting an acquittal if you go to trial, but you're not certain that you will. And if you roll the dice and lose, you are going to go to prison for up to 20 years. By contrast, if you simply agree to stop fighting and, and plead guilty, regardless of whether you think you're really guilty or not, then you will get a sentence more on the order of two weeks to two months. It's the difference between your children growing up without a parent or even two parents, because some in some cases they charge the couple um, versus your children just having an unpleasant couple of weeks or months while you're not around and the embarrassment of having a parent who's been convicted of a crime. That's not even a close comparison. And that is the face of American criminal justice today. That is precisely how most criminal convictions are obtained in America today. Prosecutors simply pile on how much, however much pressure is necessary to get somebody to waive their right to a trial and plead guilty. And it works 
almost perfectly in every case. So, so it's it's that incentive structure that you just described that we can tie back, I think, to something else you said earlier, which is, you know, uh, why do we have this really big differentiation between, again, tr- uh, putting murderers on trial, which most people, I think, would agree is, is a good thing versus, uh, you know, arresting people for having saggy, saggy pants. When we take the incentive structure you just talked about, about the deck being stacked and, you know, plea bargains being railroaded, uh, that must also tie back to what you're saying before. And you're, we're creating an incentive for for legislators and, and law enforcement to then concentrate on people with saggy pants because there are sort of different funnels that you could put these people through either way. And as you were saying, one of them, one of the funnels you could put people through is more likely than not a plea bargain outcome. It's a score. It's a point for the police, I guess. It's a scoreboard point and arrest that actually turned to a conviction. And then uh, and then I guess the the prosecutors or whoever's handling that side of the case at that point that then gets a point because, oh, look, we got a guilty verdict. So I guess you have a sort of these two incentive structures that's creating that situation where the, the system's effectively, as you're saying, being abused at that point. Then that's why we have these saggy pants laws at some point. Yeah, I mean, this, I think, takes us to one of the most important points that you can know about our criminal justice system. And it is in some ways the sort of the banality of evil. Um, <clears throat> the primary driving dynamic, arguably, in our system <clears throat> is is not particularly sinister. In fact, it is dismayingly banal, and it is this. Um, We spend about $300 billion uh, on criminal justice in America. If you take everything from policing at one end of the spectrum to incarceration at the other end of the spectrum and lump it all together, it's about a $300 billion industry um, and employs about 3 million people. Like anybody else, those people have to demonstrate productivity in order to keep their jobs and not just keep their jobs, but to get a promotion or uh, an increase in salary. And the only real way for people in the criminal justice system to demonstrate productivity is to keep both the pipeline and the prisons full. By the pipeline, I mean, you've got to keep up a certain number of arrests. You've got to have people passing through the system because if you're not making a certain number of arrests, then you don't need that many cops. By the same token, um, prosecutors have to keep a certain number of prosecutions going. They have a tremendous amount of discretion about deciding whether or not to decline charges and to simply say, we're not, you know what, you arrested that guy, but we're not going to prosecute him. Mm-hmm. But as John Pfaff, <clears throat> um, a professor at Fordham, has demonstrated, pro- uh, prosecutors over the past several decades have gotten less and less inclined to dismiss charges. They are more and more likely to proceed with a prosecution. This can be explained through nothing more um you know, sort of uh, uh, sinister than just a desire to demonstrate productivity in order to keep their jobs and increase their budgets. And so um, th- this is a, 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 you know, again, a kind of a banal, but incredibly important aspect of American criminal justice. It's not that people are out there trying to be bad. Some of them are, but most of them are not. They're just showing up at work and doing what the rest of us would do, which is trying to, you know, demonstrate productivity. It just so happens that the way you demonstrate productivity in the criminal justice system at the end of the day is bodies in cages. Uh, And so there's strong economic incentives to maximize the number of bodies in cages. And American prosecutors, um, police officers and judges have gotten very, very good at maximizing the number of bodies in cages. And it's in some ways there is one thing that is verges on sinister. And it's this Um, a significant number of police departments depend for their annual budget on revenue that is raised by the police themselves. In other words, the number of tickets and citations they hand out, the amount of civil forfeiture proceeds that come into the department. So in effect, on top of everything else that I have just described, they, by tasking police officers with raising revenue to support their own work, their own jobs, they have helped fundamentally transform the nature of the relationship between police and citizens from protective to predatory as police go out into the field looking for opportunities to make money by handing out citations and tickets and even taking people's property. Um, and here in America, if you don't know, you should know this. They, a police officer can take your car or your cell phone or any amount of cash that you have in your pocket simply by asserting that, for example, he can smell the odor of burning marijuana inside your car. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probable cause to arrest you for that crime. And that's all they need to take that car uh, at that point, And they do it all the time. And I actually think that connects nicely to the next point. I want to make sure we, we get in before our break here, which is which is the third fundamental pathology in America's criminal justice system. You talk about near zero accountability for police and prosecutors. And again, I'll, I'll read a quote from you. You say, look, the bottom line is this American 
police and prosecutors wield extraordinary power over the lives of others, including even the power of life and death, and yet they are among the least accountable people on the planet. Yes, it's it's disgraceful. Um, uh, I call it a near zero system of accountability, and here's why. Prosecutors are completely unaccountable. So for them, it is zero, literally zero accountability. Uh, police, there's a tiny, tiny, infinitesimally small fraction of accountability. So it wouldn't be quite accurate to say that police and prosecutors um, have zero accountability. It's just, it's within like a few thousands of a percentage of zero accountability. And what you'll see is, is essentially that almost no matter how horrendous a particular um, uh, act of misconduct was and how horribly somebody was harmed, I'm talking about, for example, um, a prosecutor has engaged in demonstrable prosecutorial misconduct, like failing to disclose potentially exculpatory evidence, which they have a constitutional obligation to do before a case goes to trial. Um, and somebody gets falsely convicted, goes to prison for 20 or 25 years, and this has actually happened here in America, the one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that nothing is going to happen to that prosecutor. Uh, even if the, the, the failure to disclose that evidence was willful, uh, and even if they knew that the person was innocent uh, and that they proceeded with the prosecution anyway, prosecutors are virtually never held accountable for anything in this country, even when they've engaged in willful misconduct that has destroyed somebody's life. That is the essence uh, of accountability in our system, which is that there isn't any, even for police and prosecutors who egregiously abuse their power um, and destroy a person's life as a result. We have absolutely and firmly embraced a, a policy of near zero accountability for members of law enforcement in this country. And that absolutely fuels many of the pathologies that we have already discussed because they know they will get away with it. And, and, and in the article on this topic, you, you follow up on that exact point you made there, but by saying, of course, that there's very low amount of uh, accountability for police and prosecutors. And then you say, and the judiciary in brackets, you put starting to see a theme here, which I like that you did that has helped ensure that other avenues of accountability, including particularly the ability to bring civil damage claims are largely toothless. So not only is, if you will, uh, the main line of criminal justice, you know, stacked against people and, and there's a way too little accountability in that area. Other alternative avenues you're saying become largely toothless because of a lot of the work that's being done in that area as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are only so many avenues of accountability or potential accountability uh, against a member of law enforcement. Um, one is a criminal prosecution of, for example, a police officer who has violated somebody's rights. We have seen that occasionally, um, but you should not make the mistake of thinking that just because um, the police officer who killed George Floyd is being prosecuted, that that happens very often. It almost never happens. The only time it really happens is when it's been caught on video that has gone viral and the local prosecutor understands that it's a threat to his political career if he doesn't do something. But short of that, police are almost never charged with crimes, even when they commit them. Uh, another avenue of potential accountability is what we call internal accountability mechanisms. So we're talking about internal discipline, like getting uh, you know, suspended by your supervisor mm. or investigated by internal affairs. Um, that avenue doesn't work very well either um, for this reason, that, you have, that you, effectively what you're being required to do is ask police to decide that police have done something wrong, and they hardly ever do that. So really, the only potentially effective avenue of accountability for most citizens in most settings in America is the ability to file a civil rights lawsuit against a police officer or a prosecutor um, or other government official who has harmed them. And the Supreme Court has bent over backwards to invent out of whole cloth a whole complex uh, of special privileges, special defenses um, that we refer to as immunity doctrines uh, that make it difficult and in some cases, as with prosecutors, actually impossible to sue a government official, no matter how obvious it is that they have engaged in misconduct, that they have violated somebody's rights, and that they have destroyed somebody's life. Even then, it can be almost impossible, and again, with prosecutors, actually is impossible to, uh, to access this only potentially viable avenue of accountability. And this is in large measure because the Supreme Court has told itself a fantasy about the efficacy of the other accountability mechanisms in our system. The Supreme Court is completely delusional when it comes to thinking that if you eliminate or practically eliminate civil liability as an avenue of accountability, that there are a bunch of other avenues that may be equally or more effective. There are not, and the Supreme Court's contrary belief is nothing more than a judicial delusion. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Clark Neely today.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ken Dubian, Chris Rondolo, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Clark Neely today. Uh, Clark, I think the first half of our episode uh, was was great. Uh, we went into what, what you call the fundamental pathologies of America's criminal justice system. I think that provides great context for what I want to focus on in the next half of our chat here, which is which is ultimately solutions, right? And in the spirit of our episode, we're talking about uh, not only America's policing problem, which is the, the title, but also the, the system around that. And uh, of course, especially this year in 2020, lots of people have been talking about many things, public intellectuals, headlines have been written. How do we solve this problem? Some people think it's a set of solutions. Other people think they have the silver bullet. There is absolutely no way that the second half of our episode here can do justice to everything that we could talk about. But I'd like to focus on a couple of pillars and get myself and our listeners your insights on them. Let's start with, with a bigger one. Uh, it's a term a lot of people are probably familiar with based on the media over the past couple months, qualified immunity. You're an expert. Uh, can you first tell us what qualified immunity really is? Because firstly, I think there's a confusion with a lot of people what it is. And then, of course, how, in your opinion, we should care about it either way. You bet. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because, in fact, qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement in this country. So the way what, what qualified immunity is, is it's what's called an affirmative defense. That means it's a defense that a government official can assert in court if you sue them for an alleged civil rights violations. So I can give you a concrete example. There was a case that happened uh, in Georgia where police were chasing a suspect through a residential neighborhood. Um, They caught up to him on the front yard of a family that was outside playing with their kids. They tackled the suspect, handcuffed him. And when after the officer had handcuffed the suspect and they had everybody on the front yard laying down on their faces to control the scene, Um, The family dog came out from underneath the house and the police officer, for no good reason, the dog wasn't barking or threatening anybody, pulled out his pistol and shot at the dog. He missed. Dog went under the house, came back a few minutes later. The same police officer again took a shot at the dog. This time he hit a 10-year-old boy in the back of the leg who was lying on the ground a foot and a half away from him. There isn't the slightest doubt in anybody's mind that that was an example of excessive force and obvious negligence. That was a very clear violation uh, of that boy's civil rights. So the family sued. And instead of trying to say, you know, well, there's some question about whether what I did was or was not uh, permissible, according to, you know, sort of basic police practice and doctrine. Instead, the police officer simply asserted this qualified immunity doctrine. And here's what it provides. Qualified immunity provides that you cannot sue a government official, including a police officer, unless the specific right that you are alleging was violated was clearly established at the time. And this turns out to be a kind of a judicial sleight of hand because what they really mean is that you have to go out and find a case with nearly identical facts where a court has already weighed in and said that particular thing is a rights violation. And if it just so happens that in your jurisdiction, here we're talking about Georgia, a police officer doesn't happen to have shot a kid in the back of the leg who was lying on the ground a foot and a half away from that police officer while the police officer was taking a shot at a non-threatening dog while apprehending a suspect, well, guess what? You're out of luck. Not because it was okay what the police officer did, just because of the mere happenstance that that specific thing has not yet happened in this jurisdiction and been you know, uh, uh, weighed in on by the courts. Uh, and it turns out that qualified immunity does a tremendous amount uh, of work in our system. And the primary work that it does is it enables government officials, including particularly police, who have demonstrably violated somebody's rights. There's no dispute about it. They have demonstrably violated somebody's rights and harmed them as a result to nevertheless escape civil liability, not because what they did was okay, but simply because there doesn't happen to be a pre-existing case on point that the plaintiff can point to. It is a doctrine that produces an untold amount 
of individual injustice and systematically infantilizes police by having the judiciary step in time and time again and effectively say, hey, that thing you did that violated that person's rights and that all of us know you shouldn't have done, we're still going to give you a free pass. Why? Well, just because it doesn't happen to have been done yet uh, in this particular jurisdiction. And how could you have known not to shoot at a non-threatening dog when there's a bunch of kids lying on the ground? Because after all, you're only a cop. We can't expect you to be held to the same standard as everybody else. You instead must, must get a much lower standard than the rest of us. And, and you would think that some of what I have just said must be an exaggeration, that it must be um, that it must be a hyperbole, and the sad truth is that it's not. If anything, I have downplayed it, not overplayed it. So on the one hand, you need you need the precedents, near identical precedents established. But on the other hand, if that precedence doesn't exist, as you said, it's a sleight of hand. It's a bit of a trap. The precedents can never be established. Right, because the Supreme Court has held that the um, in considering a case where qualified immunity has been inserted uh, asserted. Um, the court doesn't have to to uh, uh, to employ what you would think uh, would be the correct sequence, which is that you would first ask, okay, was there a constitutional right not to be shot in the back of the leg, you know, by this Yosemite Sam trigger happy cop? Second, once we've said, you know, yes, there was a right not to be shot, um, then second, okay, well, was it clearly established? What the Supreme Court allows courts to do instead is to dodge that potentially difficult question about whether a constitutional right was violated at all and take the easy out and simply say, well, let's put that perhaps difficult question to one side. What we do know is that this particular thing has not yet happened in this jurisdiction. So this officer gets qualified immunity. And as you suggested just a moment ago, that absolutely does lead to a stagnation of the law because we never get to find out. I mean, I shouldn't say never. Sometimes courts will answer the first question first, like they should logically, but oftentimes, particularly when the the issues are the thorniest, they'll just skip that part of it and they'll just say, well, you know, regardless of whether the Constitution forbids this or not, there wasn't a case on point, so it's not clearly established, qualified immunity granted, the case is over. And then guess what? The next time a cop does that thing to somebody, he's going to get qualified immunity too, because why? Because they dodged the opportunity to say whether or not the specific thing that cop did was or was not a violation. And it just keeps on going. I'm going to move us away from qualified immunity because there is we could talk about it forever. But but I want to cover a couple other things. But before I move us away from that, I know you are on Twitter and you're active on there. And I hate uh, narrowing things down to uh, hashtags and small slogans because obviously these issues are very complex. But it sounds like we nevertheless, we can put you down for hashtag and qualified immunity. Yeah, it's actually hashtag abolish QI. There you go. That's the one we're trying to get people to use. And uh, yes, I am absolutely a fervent uh, uh, disciple of the abolished QI school. We got our endorsement and we got our proper hashtags. That's awesome. M- moving away from that, one of the things you uh, highlight uh, in one of your articles too is that police departments pick up the, the tab for police misconduct. So we have an establishment picking up the tab for what individuals might do. You present an interesting idea. You say, well, doctors, for instance, have a form of liability insurance at the individual level. Why don't we make it the same for individual police officers? They should have a form of liability insurance. So can you talk about why that would be helpful and, and how we can see that implemented? Sure. So there are two things that we do in America that, in my view, are completely insane. The first one we've already talked about, which is to allow to let rights violating government officials off the hook. Um, even when they have demonstrably injured somebody through their misconduct, we allow them to assert QI qualified immunity and let them off the hook so they don't have to pay damages to some to people that they have injured through their misconduct. I think that's indefensible. The second insane thing that we do is that even in the relatively small subset of cases where we do hold misbehaving government officials liable for their misconduct, we allow the police department or the city that employs them to indemnify them. That's just a legal term that means that the employer pays whatever damages the officer has incurred through his or her misconduct. And this is a nearly uniform policy throughout the United States. Uh, there's a, a, the leading scholar of qualified immunity um, uh, from an empirical standpoint is Professor Joanna Schwartz at the UCLA Law School. And she has an article in which she documents that 99.98% of all dollars paid out in civil damages award uh, for police misconduct are paid not by the individual officer, but by the department or by the city, which ultimately means by us, mm-hmm. the taxpayers. So my proposal is simply this. Let us 
end qualified immunity so that misbehaving government officials have to pay for the injuries they cause through their misconduct. Let's end indemnification so that their employers, meaning we the taxpayers, no longer pick up the tab for their misconduct. And this will naturally um, create pressure, and we could even do this legislatively, I don't think we'd have to, it create, will create pressure for police to have to go out and do what the rest of us do, which is to go out and purchase professional liability insurance. And the beautiful thing here is that we could actually um, provide them with an allowance. So they wouldn't have to pay for this out of pocket. Maybe they should, reasonable people could differ, um, but to make it politically more palatable, we could even have uh, the government pay them an allowance that they could then use to go and purchase this liability insurance so there would be no money out of their own pocket. And of course, what happens with uh, what would happen with professional liability insurance for police is what happens with insurance elsewhere, which is that just like with a bad driver or a bad doctor, bad police would see the cost of their insurance go up. As they generate more claims and represent a greater risk to the insurance company, the insurance company will charge them more money for that insurance policy, just like if you're a driver who goes out and gets a bunch of speeding tickets and gets into wrecks all the time. And what will happen eventually is that the very worst police who generate really um, the, the, the highest number of claims, a, a um, unusually high number of damages claims, their insurance will either become, um, uh, will, will price them out of the market or they simply won't be able to get it at all. So it'll be either prohibitively expensive or simply unavailable. And effectively what will happen to those police is they will get priced out of the profession. They will no longer be able to be police officers. And think how elegant that is in its simplicity and how wonderful it would be. We have all these proverbial bad apples and it is a true fact that the vast majority of misconduct is committed by a relatively small minority of police. What our system has shown itself to be persistently unable to do is to get rid of them, to get them out of policing. And requiring police to purchase their own liability insurance would take care of that kind of organically because eventually they would just no longer be able to afford or even to obtain the liability insurance that they would need to have in order to do their jobs and they would have to go and find other work. And that would be a wonderful result for those of us um, who, you know, feel that we, we have a right to be safe from police misconduct. Right. And as you said, on the one hand, if the individual has to pay for it, at some point, it, they're being priced out of the market personally. If the state ultimately us has to pay for it, whatever department's running that would obviously at some point see a liability risk that's way too high and not want to pay the tab either way. So yeah, that's right. And, and, and of course, keep in mind that none of this happens by accident. Um, the decision to indemnify police officers was not one that was made by some democratic majority of citizens. Perish the thought. Um, the reason why our system is so persistently pro-police officer and pro-law enforcement is because in America, the law enforcement lobby, by which I mean the combined interests of police prosecutors and prison guards, is the second strongest and most influential political lobby in this country. They are massively influential when it comes to policy. So when you hear a police officer or a prosecutor say, hey, I don't make the law, I just enforce it, nothing could be further from the truth. As a vocation, police and prosecutors exert astonishing influence over the very substance of criminal law. And one of the things that is very high on their list of priorities is making sure that the amount of accountability um, that they face is as absolutely low as possible. Low accountability in terms of uh, consequences for your job if you mess up, and low accountability in terms of um, being required to personally pay any damages to people you injure through your misconduct. Um, one might say that among the highest priorities of American law enforcement is ensuring the very lowest possible levels of accountability as they go about their jobs. On that note, actually, that trope where people say either a police officer defending themselves or people defending the police saying, well, these guys don't don't make the laws, they just enforce them. That kind of does ultimately, I think, uh, tie back to something you're saying earlier, too, which is there's this this hidden area of life that many people don't see or think about, which is all, all the all the precedents and the, the work that the judiciary does in effectively making and molding law. It's not just a legislator passes X, Y, and Z law and someone goes and enforces it. And you citizens, if you want something changed, please just go pass another bill. It, there's a lot that happens in between. I, and that seems to tie back to what you're saying before. No, absolutely. And, and you know, a, a good concrete example would be that um, many law enforcement lobbies have come out against legalizing marijuana, even though that's very clearly the direction that the country is headed in. And two thirds of Americans have said that they would like it to be legalized. And one of the obvious reasons for that is that 
when marijuana is illegal, it makes it much easier for police to stop people, to search them. All they have to do, for example, is say that they smelled burning marijuana coming from your car, and that gives them the ability to search it. So right. police have a vested interest um, in ensuring um, that there are many laws on the books um, that enable them to, you know, to, to interact with citizens against their will, engage in searches, go on fishing expeditions, and so forth. So again, this idea that police don't make the laws, they only enforce them is something that they like to say, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's an absolute lie. And I actually think that ties into another point I'd like to move us to, I think you mentioned briefly earlier, but police unions. So what about this idea when we talk about police unions? A lot of people have said that at this point, they should just be banned altogether. There's a variety of reasons they they should be, is what the proponents of this idea claim. Um, some people say it's just simply not a field where a union is appropriate for a variety of the incentive types of reasons that we've been talking about before. Others think that, that the profession simply just on principle, uh, regardless of incentives, again, on principle, should just not be protected by, by that kind of uh, labor logic, if you will. What are your thoughts on this issue? Well, I believe that allowing public employees to unionize has been an absolute disaster, and allowing police in particular to unionize has been an unmitigated and tragic disaster. Uh, the um, uh, the the just astonishing uh, number of of special rules that that you know apply to police but not ordinary citizens and special benefits that they get on the job um, are mind boggling. Um, just to give you one example, um, in many jurisdictions, if a police officer is charged with misconduct, including serious misconduct like using lethal force unnecessarily, um, there's this astonishing web of special privileges that come into play. Uh, so, for example, in many places, they cannot be questioned question for days after the incident occurred. Sometimes they have to be told every bit of evidence that has been collected that pertains to the incident. So if there's video, they, were, they will be told that. They'll be told the names of any witnesses that have given statements, et cetera, et cetera, which of course enables them to tailor their version of events um, to you know, what they have been told the evidence may show. And so you know, these are, are just a few examples of, of special uh, treatment that police get. Um, and believe me, that I, we've, we're only scratching the surface here. Um, and much of that is the direct result of allowing police uh, to form unions um, and, and, and it just enhances the already extraordinarily powerful political influence that they have uh, just by virtue of, of you know, their institutional uh, prerogatives. Uh, but when you then allow them uh, to unionize, the imbalance between the amount of power that, that a relatively small number of police wield um, compared to um, the, the very low amount of power that democratic majorities outside of law enforcement culture wield just could not be overstated. Almost nothing happens in America when it comes to criminal justice or police reform without the agreement of the law enforcement lobby. And that's not an exaggeration. And it seems to me that and I, I don't want to overstate the case, but it seems to me that a lot of people that, let's say, uh, politically speaking, you might find tending to disagree or throw shade at, like, you know, things like a teacher's union or, or a different labor union for reasons that goes something along the lines of, well, you know, it prevents uh, better people from succeeding. It keeps the bad apples in. It keeps the, the worst employees around. Like, there's a lot of, again, I'm not endorsing this either way. I'm just saying you will hear a lot of arguments uh, from, from certain folks of certain political stripes talking against those kinds of unions. But apparently all that logic to some people like shuts off when we move that to police unions. At that point, all the things that they may have been saying on the, on the, on the one end are, are not applicable to police unions. But as you described, if there's a big union incentives happening in something like a big teachers union, if you grant that, then that must be happening, especially in a police union. Yeah, that's right. There, there's a lot of inconsistency here um, in America. You know, conservatives, people on the right tend to be very pro law enforcement and anti union. Um, but somehow that seems to flip-flop when it comes to uh, police, as I think you suggested. Um, you know, one of the things that cuts across all ideological lines, I think, and should cut across all ideological lines, is that we should all be able to agree that people who have demonstrated themselves to be unfit for the job of being a police officer should be eliminated um, as quickly as possible. And if you talk to big city police chiefs in particular, the most consistent frustration that they will express, in my experience, um, is their inability to get rid of the lowest performing and most violent police officers, the ones that represent the greatest risk to the community. In America, it is extraordinarily difficult uh, to fire a police officer 
even when they've shown but beyond any question that they're unfit for the job. And a lot of that has to do with the various protections that have been put in place by police unions up to and including the ability to overturn the decision of a police chief to fire a police officer and reinstate that officer, not because anybody thinks that they're a good officer or deserve to be back on the job, but simply because they were able to win some kind of a, you know, an administrative or an arbitration, um, uh, you know, hearing in, in a forum that was stocked with former police officers. And guess what? They go right back on the job, right back out on the street, and they start hurting people again. Right. Go figure. Right. It's indefensible. It's indefensible. Mm-hmm. And moving on to another point. So at the end of the day, a lot of people are ultimately saying that a lot of the calls that police get, and this is claimed that, again, this is no fault of the police, of course, logically, that a lot of the calls that are directed to the police force are just not appropriate for them. So so here's where you get the, the, the and again, this is a very big discussion. It could take an hour itself, but, but here's the idea where people have been talking about, for example, we need more social workers and mental health experts responding to certain situations. Um, you know, there's, there's tons of different proposals of this type. You know, some people say that, you know, uh, social workers and things like that can work hand in hand with the police. Other people say there should be a specific number that you call if you think there's somebody having, for example, a mental health emergency, things like that. What's your take on this idea that there is over-policing from the perspective of every single time there's any kind of emergency, it's the police force, law enforcement that's called? Well, I think it's absolutely right. There's no question that it's right. And you know what we're talking about here is a more nuanced version of defund the police. Very few people mean like disband the police, although some people say, I don't agree with that. What they really mean is shift resources from the police uh, to other kinds of social services. You know, maybe an apt metaphor here would be to say that, um, imagine that, you know, you're the person responsible for home maintenance in your home, but the only tool that you have available to you is a hammer. Well, a hammer is exactly the right tool for some jobs, and it's exactly the wrong tool for other jobs. It's precisely the same thing uh, with the whole variety, you know, of, of social ills that can arise. You actually look at the numbers, the vast majority of what police do is not responding to criminal activity. You might think, you know, from what you see on TV, that mostly what they spend their time doing is, you know, responding to uh, bank robberies or home invasions or things like that. That's a very small percentage of their time. What they spend a lot of time doing um, is responding to things like homeless people, um, people having a mental health episode, uh, people uh, having a drug overdose or other substance abuse issue, people who are in a dispute with one another, whether it's neighbors or people within a home. Um, And I think to a high degree of certainty, um, an armed law enforcement agent is not the right response to most of those situations. Even, for example, a domestic uh, dispute, which can certainly turn violent and many police end up getting hurt or killed uh, when going to domestic violence calls. But what I think we've not talked about enough is maybe it's the presence of an armed law enforcement officer that escalates some of these um, disputes or that triggers a a, a homeless person or a mentally ill person. And if we had responded with compassion instead of force, and let me just quickly say, not all police officers represent this sort of blunt instrument of a hammer. Some of them are incredibly compassionate and incredibly professional, and I honor those. But some of them are the opposite of those things. Some of them show up at an incident and immediately start escalating it, Um, in part because some of them are trained to try to obtain tactical control of a situation by immediately showing up and ordering everybody around you know, which is perceived as disrespectful to people. People don't like to be ordered around and some of them start pushing back. Right. So you take a situation that might've ended peacefully. If someone had simply showed up and said, Hey, um, you know, I'm not armed. I don't have the power to arrest you, but I am here to help. What can I do to help you? There are so many situations I think that could have ended peacefully and, and beneficially for all involved if we had sent a different person. But when you send a police officer that can really raise the stakes for everybody um, and it can create a situation uh, where everything goes off the rails and ends up uh, in a violent confrontation with somebody getting hurt or arrested when it didn't need to go down that way. So I absolutely support the idea that we need to take a hard look um, at what kinds of uh, you know social problems we are tasking police with addressing and making sure that we're much more conscientious about saying, you know what? Let's only send them to the problems that really require a law enforcement response. And let's figure out if we can have some other response to the vast majority um, of, of, you know, sort of social ills and social problems that we currently send police to where somebody 
you know, who is really more like a social worker and just there to help would be a better response. And and this would seem to me especially true where you have uh, jurisdictions or departments where, like, as you said, they have a specific type of tactical training and in some cases, you know, access to surplus military equipment that they then bring to these situations. It's hard uh you know, to understand, as you said, how you how a situation de-escalates when you show up with, you know, um, base, a, a rifle, essentially, and start, as you said, ordering everybody around at their house and that they're already charged up. So, it, again, sympathy is a key word there. I think we even if we disagree with someone's conduct uh, against the police, uh, I'm not saying anything in that regard, but just from an objective point of view, you, you, we must be able to sympathize with how people react to armed forces coming to their house. Like at, at that base level, I think that's some common ground. I hope most people can agree with. Well, I couldn't agree more. And if you want a really chilling illustration of what we've been talking about, go online and look at the recruiting videos that certain police departments put out. Um, what you'll see is, you know, this, this, uh, you know, uh, high tempo, uh, heavy metal music and and cops kicking down doors and jumping out of armed armored cars in tactical gear. Uh, and they really emphasize that part of the job when, in fact, it's a tiny fraction of what police do uh, compared to, you know, the much more mundane, you know, kind of just going out, interacting with the community and trying to help people. Uh, and if you are if you're recruiting people in that manner, who do you think is going to sign up for the work? Right. Right. And so I think it really reflects both a kind of a mindset and a fundamental error uh, in the way that uh, police departments uh, recruit people. Um, and it also reflects, unfortunately, a, a mentality. Um, a lot of people say, and I'm, I'm increasingly of this view myself, if you dress people up and equip them and organize them like a military unit, just look at the ranks in American police departments. You know, we have sergeants and lieutenants, captains. Um, when you model a police force on a military force and then equip them like a military force and dress them like a military force, what do you think they are going to start acting like? Right. A military force, an occupying military force. Right. With with, with less training and understanding of things like rules of engagement than members of the military might understand. I, I It's hard to ignore uh, current and ex-members of the military I, I've seen in places on Twitter or in op-eds saying that um, they don't appreciate how the police are being compared to the military in that way because they're like, because they say from their perspective, I have way more training in things like rules of engagement de-escalation than these people do. So I, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly right. You'll actually see people, for example, on YouTube saying, you know what, it, when I was serving in the Marines, you know, in Afghanistan or Iraq, if I had done what I what I just saw this cop in this YouTube video do, I would have been court-martialed. Um, and take one example. Um, there was, uh, you, you will routinely see on YouTube when, when police are engaging with protesters, and this definitely happened, for example, during the Ferguson protests about five years ago, four years ago, you'll see police pointing weapons at people who are not a present lethal threat to them. There's even an iconic picture of a police sniper up on top of the roof of a squad car observing a crowd through the scope of his sniper rifle while pointing that rifle at a crowd of peaceful demonstrators. Pointing a weapon at another human being is among the most provocative things that you can do. And members of our military are taught never, never to do that unless that person represents a present lethal threat to you. Because when you point a weapon at another person, you are very likely to, to provoke an event that might not otherwise have had to happen. And you're putting both their safety and your safety at risk. And yet you can see strewn across the internet, pictures of police pointing weapons uh, at individuals and even crowds of individuals who do not represent a present physical threat to those officers. And that in some ways, that is perhaps a, a you know, I don't want to say that it is a perfect illustration of modern American policing. It's a perfect illustration of a particular pathology within modern American policing. And it's an image that should be burned into the minds of everybody who cares about this issue. Right. And tying it back to one of the threads earlier we were drawing upon and uh, the discussion of accountability and double standards. How do police interpret it when you point a weapon at them? Well, you point a weapon at a police officer, you better be ready to lose your life because, exactly. you know, they're, they're trained um, to to do what is necessary to protect themselves and their fellow officers. And, and you know, fair enough. Um, I, I don't think that we're requiring them to sign up for that job to allow people to shoot at them. But that does raise another issue, which is how much risk um, we expect police to take in the line of duty. Because one of the things that they're trained to do is to not hesitate. They're trained that if you hesitate too long and you misinterpret a situation, um, you let somebody, for example, put their hand in their pocket. You don't know what's in that pocket. Maybe a cell phone's going to come out, but it might be a gun. Um, and people can move a lot more fast than you, than you can react. So they're trained. Don't take that risk. Don't hesitate. If you think that person might be a lethal threat, you put them down. Um, that is one way to go about it. 
but it certainly results in a significant number of unnecessary shootings and unnecessary deaths. And I think part of the conversation that we ought to be having in this country and we are not presently having is how much risk we expect police to take when it comes to something like hesitating long enough to know for certain that that person is trying to hurt you as opposed to um, you know, being worried that they might be trying to hurt you. And yes, that would result in more police getting killed, just as it results in more firefighters getting killed when we say, you know what, part of your job is going into a burning building and rescuing, pe rescuing people when they're inside there. Um, some firefighters might say, hey, you know what, I'm not up for a job where I have to run into a burning building, to which the response is, okay, well, then you just shouldn't be a firefighter. Maybe it's the same thing here. If you're not willing to hesitate and increase your personal risk as a police officer until you're certain that that person represents a threat to your life, maybe it's not the right line of work for you. Right. And as you said before, it would seem that when we uh, give people a uniform, give them weapons, access to more weaponry, uh, give them certain protections under the law, uh, give them authority to do X, Y and Z, that they are already uh, effectively uh, signaling that they are at, at a higher standard in, in many ways than other people. So it, as you were saying, it, it's only logical if we at least start exploring the conversation as to why they, they should be held to a higher standard of expectation. Well, that's absolutely right. And one of the most tragic things that you can see online is, is there's a number of, of, of videos, usually from an office officer's uh, body-worn camera, uh, where uh, officers were a member of a SWAT team. So they are fully decked out in, in tactical gear, in bulletproof vests. Um, they have, uh, you know, uh, assault weapons. They have a tremendous amount of training. They have the ability um, to, to, to use cover. Um, so where they are exposed to a very, very slight risk, um, but then whoever it is that they're responding to, um, you know, makes a furtive gesture or something like that. And there are a number of incidents in which uh, police have just shot and killed somebody while the officer, him or herself, was in a position of relative safety. And the person uh, that they shot, again, maybe just made a furtive gesture, but didn't actually point a weapon at them or anything like that. OK, Clark, so we, we've talked about a lot today uh, and every episode. I want to make sure that the guest actually has the last word and, and takes us out in that way. So let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question if we can. So let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how America's policing problem can be fixed? If you wanted to leave someone with one or two things out of everything we've discussed, what would that be? The takeaway, I think, is this. First, we have to improve the overall legitimacy of our criminal justice system. It's, it's, I think it's impossible for police to be perceived as legitimate and respectable uh, if they are the remain in the front lines uh, of implementing a fundamentally illegitimate and not respectable criminal justice system. And that's a heavy lift, but that's uh, the, the problem is not simply one that is isolated to policing. That's the first point. The second point I think is that we've got to change institutional culture. Um, we have to change police from an, uh, policing from an extraordinarily low accountability vocation to a high accountability vocation. Uh, many police officers have expressed frustration about having to work with other police who are unfit um, for having to be tarred with the same brush uh, and be held in low esteem by the public, not because they themselves um, have done anything disreputable, but because their colleagues have uh, engaged in misconduct uh, for which there's no accountability. Uh, so that's an institutional change that has to happen. And I think third, uh, we have to stop asking police to go out uh, into the world and enforce morally indefensible laws. We have to ask them to stop uh, enforcing laws for which there is no moral justification and a very significant chunk of our criminal code falls within that category. And second, we have to stop asking them uh, to go out and raise revenue by taking money away from people. Um, there is a perception uh, that police are engaged in policing for profit. It's an accurate perception in many cases, uh, and it's very difficult to earn the respect of a population that believes that part of what you're doing is just being out on the street looking for ways to shake people down um, and prop up a kind of a shadow tax system that falls particularly um, hard on the shoulders of, uh, you know, the, the um, politically disenfranchised and, and um, economically downtrodden, so to speak. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. We have to change the culture. We have to change the environment in which they operate. Uh, and we have to stop asking police to engage in fundamentally um, non-respectable behavior and immoral behavior. Uh, and until we do that, I, I don't see how we're really going to fundamentally fix the problems in American policing. I think we'll leave it there then. That's excellent. Clark Neely, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. So my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. 
The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 